On this week's prequel episode, we follow up on our Allegiant listener polls and a preview, Catherine Called Birdie. Hello and welcome back to another prequel episode of this film. is like the podcast where we talk about movies that are based on books. It's a prequel episode. We don't have a learning things segment, but we have a lot of listener feedback about Allegiant. So we're going to get right into it with our patron shoutouts. I put up with you because your father and mother were our finest patrons. That's why. No new patrons, but we have our Academy Award winners, our best of the best, and they are Vic Vicious, Matilde, Steve from Arizona, Paul, Jeff Niederhofer, Teresa Schwartz, Ian from Wine Country, Winchester's Forever, Kelly Napier, Gray Hightower, Gratch, Just Gratch, Shelby Says Air, Elemental Cycle Book 4 is out now, That Darn Skag, V Frank, and Alina Starkov. Thank you all very much for continuing to support us at that $15 and up level. We appreciate it. You're the best. It's time to see what the people had to say about Allegiant. Yeah, well, you know, that's just like... uh... Your opinion, man. Well, this week was interesting because um, we did not get like tons of votes, although we got a lot of votes of people who said that they hadn't read or watched this time. This, which yeah, is understandable. This didn't surprise me. We didn't get a ton of feedback, but the feedback we did get was uh, long, lengthy, and, and in, involved. Yeah, it's yeah, it's it was. We got to the point where there's people weren't as interested. There weren't as many people super interested in this series anymore for obvious reasons. But the people that were still interested are very interested. So I think that's how it went when the books came out too. Yes, <laughs> follows the pretty standard. There's a reason they didn't make a second movie or a part two. All right. So on Patreon, we had one vote for the book and one for the movie. Um, Shelby says Air Elemental Cycle Book 4 is out now, um, left us an essay. So let's get into that. Mm -hmm. Um, Shelby said, it is time. Let's talk about Veronica Roth's favorite trope and the point she wanted to make with this trilogy. In the lead up to the release of Allegiant, Roth made a blog post about how she thought Deathly Hollows should have ended. Um, okay. So the, the last Harry Potter book. Yes. The link doesn't exist anymore, but thanks to an excited Goodreads reviewer, whose name I will shorten to Becky for privacy reasons, we still have that quote from Veronica Roth. She stated that she would have preferred if Harry had died in Deathly Hollows because it would have been, quote, by far the most powerful moment of the entire series, and beyond that, an incredible act of heroism. Mm. Needless to say, fans were concerned. It's not enough that Harry stopped the bad guy and brought peace to the wizarding world. Unfortunately, he didn't have to die for everyone in order to do it, so it's just not as meaningful. Triss was always going to die, and she was going to do it for Caleb, and to make it even more meaningful, he had to betray her first. Isn't that powerful? These are the plot bones of the trilogy. This is the point. I'd be shocked if anyone could have predicted it reading the first two, because the character arcs and foreshadowing are buried under so much else. But don't worry, on this read-through, I gathered up all those threads so we could see the whole picture. Yeah, I mean, so ultimately, it it does. It is just what we said. It, it, it she being a Christian kind of views 
Jesus's sacrifice mm-hmm. as like the ultimate act of, you know, heroism, yeah. uh, whatever you want to call it. And so the, the, the Teresa's story was always going to end that way. I, I will say it is interesting, the quote from the Goodreads or whatever, uh, or from her blog about uh, if Harry had died, it would have been by far the most powerful moment of the entire series. I don't object to that. I Maybe it would have been, but mm-hmm. it, um, the continuing and beyond that, an incredible act of heroism that he that was the same act regardless of whether he died right. or not. He went thinking he was going to die to die. Yes. And he just happened not to die yes. because of magic. Right. So it wasn't the Which, act of heroism was not different there. Like I agree. He went fully intending to die. Yes, he fully expected to die was thinking this is the this is it and just again by kind of the happenstance of the construction of the narrative and the magic and whatnot going on did not die. Yeah. And so the heroism, in my opinion, is not changed. The impact, maybe, if you want to argue like it would have been a more powerful, whatever, you can maybe make that argument. But the act of heroism is the same. But whatever. Yeah, I, I, I agree. That's also interesting to me because, like, to me, the fact that he's, he, he like, quote unquote, dies and then is quote-unquote resurrected it is also jesus like way more like to me that's way more jesus-y than just dying yeah but whatever yeah not gonna argue with veronica i guess um okay so uh shelby has gathered some uh textual evidence for us so in divergent uh tris leaves her restrictive upbringing and chooses a new path for herself where she can thrive and discover a new love of life she grapples with the choices she makes for herself versus the ones that help others she learns more about her mother and realizes they have more in common than she thought her mom's a really strong person She makes friends with Al, and when he betrays her, she won't forgive him. He can't live with it, so he kills himself. The Dauntless think this is brave. Triss thinks this is selfish. Both Triss's parents die by heroically sacrificing themselves for their children. It's the biggest sacrifice they can make to show their love. In the end, Triss decides that Al killing himself wasn't bravery. Her parents' deaths were the actual bravery. She wants to be more like her mom. An insurgent, Triss is overwhelmed with guilt over killing Will, and she's grieving and suffering from survivor's guilt over her parents' death, especially her mom. What was the point of their sacrifice? How is she here instead of them? How can she live having killed Will? She wishes she were dead. She finally understands how Al felt. During the candor attack, Triss tries to help and ends up getting captured. She decides she could help everyone by rushing Eric and killing him, knowing she'd be killed immediately in retaliation. It would be a noble self-sacrifice just like her mother's, and bonus points, she gets to be dead. This is the reckless Veronica was trying to get across. In the end, she's saved by four. I would have to reread that, and I never will. But that was not (laughs) my interpretation of her actions during the candor attack. I'll say that. I Again, I read it once. And it was right. um, over a month ago at this point. So I truly do not remember. And I trust Shelby's memory yeah. of it better than mine. Yeah. That's just from my, what I'm remembering in my head, that is not my interpretations of her motivations right. or actions during that specific scene. And well, and even beyond like the fact that different readers can just interpret a passage differently, we know that Veronica Roth is also not particularly good at communicating. Things like motivation, so I think that can make it even more yes. 
foggy. But yes, that's true. Um, continuing with Insurgent, Four is frustrated and pleads with her to stop this and live for him, but Triss is too depressed. When Janine starts making people kill themselves, she sees this as another opportunity to sacrifice herself like her mom and turns herself in. Surprise, Caleb is evil now. This needs to happen so he can feel guilty about it in Allegiant. That I that I definitely agree with. I, I think his his heel turn in Insurgent was all about yes. the arc in Allegiant. Yeah, I don't think no. there was any other purpose for it. Right, yes. Um, final note about Insurgent. Triss is taken to her execution and only then realizes she doesn't want to die anymore. Peter saves her and Tobias, and Triss has a new zest for life. She decides that her attempts at self-sacrifice weren't genuine like her mother's because she was suicidal, so she wasn't meaningfully sacrificing her life the way her mother did. She still wants to live more like her mother. I, it's, it's, I, again, I agree with all this. I, I, I am... Again, we'll never reread this series, but my <laughs> this goes back to what we were talking about in Insurgent. I don't the only I don't recall Triss seeming suicidal until she was captured and taken by like Janine, like like mm -hmm. like when she's in, in captured at the end of the book and is like being tested on and blah 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 all that stuff. Yeah, like when like when she goes and turns herself in. Yes, and like the whole walk over there to Aradite yeah. headquarters. All of that stuff. She's sure. very much grappling yeah. with like wh whether or not she even cares enough to live and blah blah blah. And is but I don't like all of the actions prior to that. I never. I don't recall. Mm -hmm. It's seeming like she's like struggling. she's motivated by like any sort of suicidal ideation or anything like that. It uh -huh. seemed like she and again, maybe I'm misremembering, but I felt like all of her actions were motivated by her desire to help people and do what she thought would be. And maybe she was a little reckless here and there, but like I never got the vibe again until that ending part where she goes to sacrifice herself specifically, give herself up to Janine. I never got the vibe. That she was like suicidal, yeah. but I, well, I always, I always I thought it. that the recklessness was ill communicated. Yeah. That was one of my biggest problems with yeah. Insurgent. And and, I yeah. mean, among many problems was that I never thought that aspect of it was communicated very well at all. I agree. And I think that's what I'm saying is that yeah. because it, it just never felt like that really she was very reckless or suicidal or anything up until she turns herself yeah. in. It and like prior to that, she's definitely struggling with like, like survivor's guilt. Yes. Like Shelby said, and yes. like her guilt over Will. Absolutely. But I that. don't think that those two things are very well connected by the narrative. No. Yeah, I agree agree of completely she's struggling with survivor guilt and ptsd and and a bunch of stuff about what happened but i never felt up until she turned herself in at the end of the book that she was like suicidal or anything or even virgin or anything like that i just didn't and so it's interesting to see that apparently maybe that was there and i missed it or again yeah, poorly i mean maybe that's poorly communicated i don't know Poorly executed, poorly communicated, or maybe just so subtle that you would have to read it a second and, time yeah, like to be able, yeah, and, and like know where it, it was going. Yeah, potentially, yeah. All right, and finally, in Allegiant, Triss wants to live now, but Caleb is the one racked with guilt. They all decide he should do the suicide mission. Triss realizes Caleb is where she was in the last book. He isn't going to sacrifice himself because it's a noble act of love. He's going to do it because he's suicidal. That's no good, Triss thinks. It doesn't count if he doesn't do it for powerful, meaningful reasons. Looks like she'll have to take his place because she actually wants to live. 
This is her finally being more like her mother, dying for Caleb the way her mother died for her. Caleb gives Tobias a final message from Triss, which is she didn't do it because she's suicidal. Tobias is devastated, but understands. She did this because she didn't want to die, and that makes it noble, we are assured. Mm. Okay, um, Shelby went on to say, um, maybe you're thinking, that's not proof of what she was going for. What about the factions and all this other stuff? You're just threading one element together. Well, I I don't think those are mutually exclusive. Like, she can be going for it with this. That could be her point for kind of Triss's main story arc and stuff. Yeah, and still have all the And other. still have all that other stuff and have other stuff she's trying to say. Anyway, sorry, yeah. continue. Um, as it happens, I read the collector's edition of Divergent this time, and there's all kinds of bonus material in there. You mentioned in the prequel to Divergent that originally Tobias was the main character, but there's a sample of that draft here where Tobias is getting ready with his brother Caleb, spelled with a K. Um, to me, that hints that the main character dying for their brother was one of the original ideas. Even more proof, um, Veronica's working title for Divergent before it had its name was just self-sacrifice. Well, I mean, that, that yeah, that's is more pretty... proof. I'm not sure I understand how the first thing is proof that the fact I that... I mean, it... it's, it's, it's at least evidence that the main character always had this brother character. Sure. So, I... You know, I don't think it's outlandish to say, okay, maybe she always had this kind of like sibling plotline dynamic. dynamic okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, there. that's fair. That's fair. Yeah. Um, the working title is definitely. Yeah. I mean, uh, yeah. It's also a terrible working title. Yes. It's not, <laughs> it's an it's awful not a title. working title. Working titles are supposed to be like fun little like things, not like <laughs> just the the most boring like threadbare summary of the okay does it surprise you though no it doesn't surprise me but it is it's just such a terrible working title as shelby went on to say i agree with you about the things she was exploring with the factions and the people in power always turning out to be bad but honestly knowing this it all feels like set dressing now the world building doesn't make sense the plot repeats continuity errors and so many things aren't fleshed out because that's not the part she was really interested in so this whole idea that the best, most powerful way to stop the conflict is to sacrifice yourself is real icky to me. I'm not a fan. I don't like this series' attitude towards suicide and depression, and I really don't like this fetishization of dying for someone else. So I'd agree with all that. And I do agree that that, I guess it goes back to my point earlier where I said, well, I don't think those two things are mutually exclusive. I guess what Shelby's saying is that all of our problems with the fact that it feels like the book doesn't know what it's saying about mm -hmm. these other topics is because she didn't care as much about those topics and was really only focused on making this main narrative or this yeah. main thematic narrative work and and kind of be the focus, which is. Yes, uh, Triss sacrificing herself for her family as this ultimate, or as for Caleb and for everybody as this ultimate kind of um, representation of love and, mm -hmm. and whatever. And I agree. I'm also not a fan. I don't, I, I, I think yeah. I, it goes back to, uh, again, what we talked about in the episode. I just, I don't buy the, there was a note earlier um, about uh, in, in her allegiant notes, uh, Triss realizes Caleb is where she was in the last book. He isn't going to sacrifice himself because it's a noble act of love. He's going to do it because he's suicidal. That's no good. Triss thinks I, I, maybe it's a different, maybe my interpret, maybe, maybe my definition of suicidal is different. I also would not categorize Caleb as suicidal 
particularly no. in Allegiant. Maybe. We're not in his head, so I don't know. Yeah. We're only interpreting it through outsiders' perspectives of his actions and words and stuff like that. Because he doesn't seem, like, particularly jazzed about being the one who's That's on the suicide I, mission. And, and obviously not people killing themselves. You know, suicide doesn't mean yeah. they're jazzed about it necessarily. But, but I, I, it just never, again, to it me... It does feel, like, discordant. Yes. To me, it's more like he, he will do it and he's willing to do it because he feels guilty about the stuff he's done. But to me, that's different than being suicidal. Yeah, I, I don't know. And I'm, I'm not I'm not going to say that this was not Veronica Roth's like ultimate goal for the series and like the thing that she was most interested in exploring. But I do think that if she wanted it to be the series through line and like the main idea, she did a really bad job. Um, I think she did a bad. Yes, I mean I would agree. Yeah, I think she did a bad job. Regardless, I will say I think it's the most consistently, it's the most fleshed out thing. So it does. It, I don't find it unlikely that it is the main thing she was most concerned with, like the main story she was most concerned with telling, because it does feel the most thought out and sort of planned. Mm -hmm. But it doesn't mean it's not still poorly done. Yeah. And, and I think more than even poorly, regardless of even like thinking it's poorly done, I think we were never going to, even if it was done well, I think we wouldn't have liked it just because I think both of us and it sounds like Shelby don't are, it's not a thing. Like it's not a thematic story to us that is interesting. Like, no, I agree. It's just kind of a weird, like gross, maybe not gross, but it, it's, it's just a, you know, the, the idea of like this noble self-sacrifice thing is, it's I understand why it's very appealing to a Christian um, mm -hmm. as a storyline, but to a non-Christian, <laughs> I do not find it particularly appealing as a storyline. I and so, yeah, I, I don't even if it were done no, super I, well, I, I don't agree think. with you. I, I'm just saying more like if she wanted this to be the central th thematic through line of her whole mm -hmm. series, I think that she did not do it very strongly. Like, I don't I don't think yeah. like j just based on the fact that it's not obvious the first time you read it through, because I think now, now I'm not saying that we should have been able to read Divergent and Insurgent and be like, oh, obviously, this is where this is heading. Right. But I do think that by the time we got to Allegiant, we should have been like, oh, I see. Yeah, this is the point she was going for and not have to, like, read it through multiple yeah. times. And, and going off and continuing on your point, even reading Shelby's summary of the points. I still didn't even necessarily agree with all of those mm -hmm. or like, I still was like, I don't even know, like her summarizing the thematic through lines in all the books. I was still like, ah, that's not my interpretation of that. Yeah. So that, I think that this echoes what you're saying is that, yeah, even having being told a cliff notes version of this is a thematic through line for this main narrative. And I'm like, is it though? Is it, I think it implies what you're saying that it's not very well done. And I, again, yeah. I wasn't arguing that it is well done. I think it's, it's, it's a low bar. I think it's better done than than everything else, but it's right. still not very well done. <laughs> I guess was my point. It's like, yeah, it's still because like I mean, Shelby brought up uh, Harry Potter, Deathly Hollows, you know, and for all of Harry Potter's issues, yeah, the the thematic through lines oh, are very clear very throughout the entire yeah. series. You know, you don't necessarily know exactly where it's going, but by the time you get there, you're like, oh, I understand how all of these pieces fall in place yeah with this series not so much yeah 
No, yeah, yeah, 100%. I agree. Uh, Shelby did have a few additional thoughts. Um, first up, are you two pulling my leg? I read most of the world except for providence as divine providence, a.k.a. God's will or good luck. So most of the world is Mars now except the few places that escaped thanks to divine providence. That's one of the interpretations I yes. thought it might be, but... Um, it's a super clunky way to say it, so I did think Rhode Island at first, too. It could be this super... It could be this universe's version of that 2012 disaster movie where everything's destroyed except for that one part of Africa that's totally fine. Except the Eden and Divergence world is Providence, Rhode Island. I think I think it could be both. <laughs> so, again, I, I guess I'm confused at what are you two pulling my leg means because she at first seems to disagree with us, but then goes on to agree with what we said in it. Uh, I think she's just exploring both. Okay. Interpretations. So initially, I thought it was the first thing you said. Right. That was my first read of it. it that Providence, the concept, not a physical place. Yeah. Then when they literally go there and say we're going to Providence, like there's a point in the movie where they explicitly say they're going to Providence. Mm -hmm. And it's not at this point, they're not talking about the concept. Again, that first line, it could be the concept. Later on, they explicitly say they're going to Providence. So we know it is now a literal place. Then it becomes, okay, is it literally Providence, Rhode Island, or is it some new city called right. Providence? I assumed it was some new city called Providence that is named Providence for the same reason that Providence, Rhode Island is called Providence. Mm -hmm. But we have a comment later, I believe, that will that thinks it's the other way. I, I could I, It could be either. I, that, it could I don't be know. either. It could be anything. I'm choosing to believe it's Providence, Rhode Island, because I think that's the funniest interpretation. And I think that's possible because we don't know how long how far of a flight yeah. it is they go from just a, you know o'hare to there I, who knows how fast that spaceship is and who knows how long it took them to get there very well could be providence right. rhode island but i yeah i again i'm just confused by the pulling my leg line i don't like because she seems to agree with but i don't whatever i i the thing to me is that i probably it probably would have gone unremarked upon by me had they not introduced it in such a hilarious way in the movie where Tris is like does everything look like this and the guy's like yeah everything except for providence yeah like what are you doing yeah. you delivered it with the same gravitas as like except for new york but it's providence rhode island right come on yeah that's hilarious. Rereading this again, I do think I think Shelby's saying that initially she her interpretation is almost the opposite of mine. Sounds like she initially thought, oh, do they mean Providence, Rhode Island? And then mm -hmm. landed on it being this concept. Right. But I don't think that's true because I literally think they say they're going to, unless I misremember. Yes, they go to Providence. And they like explicitly say they're going Providence to Providence is. as like, and call it a place. It's not just like, again, the concept of yeah. like God's divine, whatever. Like they're literally talking about a place called Providence, whether or not it's Providence, Rhode Island is up for like, debate. And if it's not Providence, Rhode Island, I'm sorry, but it was dumb of them to choose a name that's already a place if they didn't want it to be that place. Yeah, I sure. That's fine. Yeah, yeah, I can I guess I can agree with that kind of. <laughs> I don't okay. really. I just cuz it's cuz because it's a word that has another meaning. If they had said 
Chicago, like let's let's imagine this story takes place somewhere else entirely, right? And they say, yeah, everywhere's like that except Chicago. A hundred percent is Chicago, Illinois. Yeah. There's not that like, but Providence is because it has that conceptual second meaning. Mm-hmm. I think it it's totally reasonable for it not to be Providence, Rhode Island. To just be another city called Providence in this new world. But it also could be Providence. I don't know. Whatever. It doesn't matter. It's it's already way too much. (laughs) Nobody has talked about Providence, Rhode Island this much ever. So I don't know. (laughs) I think they should have made it Detroit. That would have been even funnier. Uh, Okay. Shelby's next note. Uh, Were Katie and I really wrong about the insurgent sex scene? Or is that another continuity error error Veronica missed? You were wrong. We shall never know. No, you were wrong. We'll never know. No, you were wrong. Never know for sure. (laughs) So, okay. But the thing is, is that she keeps doing, she keeps doing the fade to black throughout the series. She does it all the time. And the fade to black is a trope in like romantic mm-hmm. young adult and mm-hmm. other romance genres. Yep. But the reason that it works is because you're supposed to use it sparingly. Yeah. But she keeps using it and yeah. that creates confusion. It only creates whatever. I, I, we're arguing semantics at this point. To me, it was not confusing. I did not read that at all. The, 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 the setup for the context around the fade to black matters to me. And in that scene from insurgent, it did not. The context set up to the fade to black was not that they were about to have sex. It's that they were like sitting in bed together, like or or it just I, the vibes weren't there it, to me. It would seem very clear that there was not an implication of them about to have sex, and then we just fade to black and don't see it. It seemed I would be more likely to believe that they were about to play Parcheesi, and then it faded to black. Okay. Like I don't. Okay. So the vibes were wrong. The vibes were not sexual. Is my point in that. Anyways, whatever. Right. Uh, Shelby's next comment. Uh, Tobias's panic attack in the book is triggered because they're going through the metal detector and it apparently reminds him of the shrinking room in his fear simulation yeah. and sets off his claustrophobia. Now, I haven't been to the U.S. in a hot minute. I've never been on a plane. I'm not sure I've been around a metal detector. Pardon me, what? <laughs> but I know they look like a big boss door is frame. Is that just an America thing? Do, do the rest of the world not use metal detectors? Yeah, I think we've had this conversation around, like, school shootings and things. No, like, I, yes, I know. I'm like, I'm sure most schools in other parts of the world don't have metal detectors. Like, my school didn't have metal detectors, but I know a lot of schools do now, blah, blah, blah. I'm just saying, like, I guess if you've never really flown very much, and I yeah. did say it had been a minute since, because, like, I don't know, like, or gone to concert, like, I would still think that, like, in other countries, like, big, like, venues and stuff would have metal det- i don't know I have no just, idea. like they're they're pretty common in the u.s again I, I i know the joke about like oh you gotta go through metal Texas, go to high school or whatever like yeah that's its own different problem but i thought it was pretty normal for other countries to have metal detectors in like the same kinds of areas airports concert airports, venues big that venues kind of that kind of i don't stuff, know maybe uh, not. somebody know. not from america is gonna have to let us know I, I i mean i've been to quite a few countries i guess i just don't remember it's been so long um and i remember go- at the airports you obviously go through scanners and metal detectors and mm-hmm. stuff but i don't remember apart from that it, how many places i was at that would have had metal detectors yeah. or, i don't know anyways 
Um, uh, so they seem they seem pretty open to me, but then I don't have claustrophobia either. Maybe this is a huge issue for people, and I don't know better. Or maybe it's a magic future metal detector built like a casket. I, I mean, I would agree that generally metal detectors, I, I wouldn't pretty think. Open. I, I'm not claustrophobic, so I yeah. don't know, but it doesn't strike me as a thing that I would mean, be they're particularly... not even... I, I've never been through one that was wider than, like, a door frame. Like you, you mean narrower than, like, a door frame? No, I've never been through a metal detector that was larger than a yeah. door frame. Yeah. So it, they are, like, pretty open in my experience. Like, yeah. they don't, I, I'm agreeing with Shelby. I don't, they don't seem to me like something that would trigger a claustrophobic panic right. attack, but I maybe I don't know. Yeah, again, I don't have claustrophobia. I don't know. The, the, what could, I, the thing that I think could more so than a metal detector is the, like, the full body scanners they have at airports. I could mm -hmm. buy that more because those are more enclosed. They're more like in, like, an MRI. I mean, they're still open. Like, the sides are open. Yeah. But when you go and stand in those, like, you are kind of enclosed a little bit, especially compared to a metal detector. Metal detector is literally, like, walking through a door. Yeah. Except there aren't walls around it. So it's, like, less claustrophobic <laughs> than a door. Like, I would argue. Like, if you're walking through a door in a hallway, that's more claustrophobic. I would think would be more claustrophobia-inducing than a metal detector. But I don't know. I don't know why this movie even bothered with Tori if they weren't going to do the part where her brother's alive and knows she's coming and happy to reunite with her. I thought the tragedy of that was one of the stronger points of the book, but then the movie just killed her because without paying it off. Yeah, just to date. Yeah. Because the book did it and it was a way to up the stakes a little by killing a, a face, a character we yeah. had seen in, in previous stuff or previous movies. I think it's interesting that Peter in the book comes to hate who he is, but doesn't want to do any of the work to become a better person, so he chooses to get his mind wiped instead. It's far more nuanced than the usual, he's just better now. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we, we, we talked about how we like yeah. that. Between this episode and I Am Legend, I'm starting to think I have a high tolerance for bleak shit, and I don't know what to do with that. Yeah, none of us do. I don't, so I don't have a high tolerance for it. <laughs> Shit, get out of here. I'm not in, not interested. Sorry, Veronica. You took too long to explain the trains, and I've already headcanoned that they're all just Blaine the Mono from the Dark Tower. This series is in desperate need of a sentient, hot, pink, bloodthirsty train obsessed with riddles. Have not read the I have Tower. never read or watched that, so I'm just going to trust that that comparison works. I don't really want to give it to the book or the movie this time. If it's a question of which one is the best examination of the material and which I'm going to revisit, I'm giving it to the podcast. The winner is Allegiant, the podcast episode of TFI. Nice. Well, thank you. We appreciate that. <laughs> we agree. Our next comment on Patreon was from a handful of fish bones who said, I think my brain might have exploded if I tried to read past the first book. Thank you both for your sacrifice. Describing the frustration of plot threads not holding ideas together as my fucking meatballs aren't holding together, man, is going to live rent free in my head. I'm glad that I could provide that for you. <laughs> All right, our last comments on uh, Patreon was from Steve from Arizona. Uh, and Steve said, Well, time to make my thoughts heard. Gen X man about to punch at clouds coming up. <laughs> well, at least you recognize what you're doing. <laughs> <laughs> I'm gonna just I'm just gonna say this. What is going on with modern YA fiction? 
I have friends that like some of this stuff, and it is appalling how self-centered and self-aggrandizing it all seems to be. Every main character is, uh, oh man, I don't even, messianic. The aspects of love, desire, and lust are so poorly actualized, it makes me wonder about the adults writing this slot. To be fair, I believe Veronica was, I mean, she was an adult, she was, but she, uh, was she was in, in college. college, right? Like, yeah. Or at least when she started I, I mean, it, the so. stuff I wrote in college yeah, was also pretty bad. Absolutely terrible, yeah. Um, and every story overtly emphasizes the importance of the youthful core group, like they are truly the only ones who can save the world. Just gag me already. I mean, that mm. is... The, the, em- the emphasis of a youthful core group is true of all young adult fiction. Yeah, being no, the like, people who can Yeah, no matter what. I mean, even if you're not of, doing the, like, oh, you have to save the world yeah. type of even fiction. Even if it's a smaller story, there's still yeah, the people you're who Yeah, those are still the people who do the things because it is fiction for young, young adults. adults. Yeah, that's kind of, like, inherent to the premise yeah. of YA. Um, Steve went on to say, nothing but cut and paste storytelling riffing on the latest trend. Clearly, these books and movies are not meant for me, but it just makes me shake my head. My YA fiction from the 80s was about exploring new worlds and possibilities due to Choose Your Own Adventure series. We had Cam Jensen, The Hardy Boys, and Nancy Drew solving mysteries. Okay, Steve. (laughs) Um, I'm going to just gently push back on you here because... You called modern YA fiction cut and paste storytelling and then without an ounce of irony in the next breath referenced the Hardy Boys and Nancy Drew being superior. Yeah. And I literally just the boy and girl version of the same thing. Listen, I I read me a lot of Nancy Drew. I read some Hardy Boys. I wasn't as into them, but I loved Nancy Drew in middle school. It's called formula fiction (laughs) for a reason. The books are great, but they are all the same. Yeah. Well, and and even beyond within the series, again, Hardy Boys and Nancy Drew are are the the same thing. Yeah. Kid detectives solving, you know, like if you want to riff on, if you're you're mad that, um, that modern YA seems like uh, cut and paste storytelling riffing on the latest trend. What is Hardy Boys and Nancy Drew and uh, the other? Yeah. They weren't the only no. child uh, detective series in the, back then that were doing similar things. It's uh, trends in media has always been a thing. Mm-hmm. Um, I it it's not like some new amazing you know it's not some new cynical like. Uh, modern problem that has just arisen out of nowhere. It's yeah. it's always been a thing. I I, I would I, I think I could agree that it's maybe monetized in a more cynical way now. Like it is maybe because of the the nature of like um move the way the way movie tie-ins and social media and all this stuff works. I think I I might agree that that those trends are like pumped and dumped yes. faster it's and like exasperated the exasperated. trend cycle is exasperated by the modern world yes but the Bec- fact that there are trends is not new yeah and that people are copy pasting ideas from previous like that's literally always been the case and it's um it's it, it's always going to be the case it's people find trends they see things that they like and it's good that's good i would argue beyond that i argue that's good 
Because if we find something that works and is cool, let's explore other similar things like that until mm-hmm. eh, we're done with this. It's not really interesting anymore. We find something else new and interesting to explore. I haven't. You can also just not engage with like that's a, that's a, it's a similar complaint. Like when I hear people talk about like, oh, all the and I've gone on this rant before. I'll try to keep it as brief as possible. But when people <laughs> are be like, well, all the movies are just remakes and blah, blah, blah. I was like, no, there's tons of movies, new movies mm-hmm. that are out there that are super cool and interesting. You just motherfuckers don't see them. I'm not even talking to Steve specifically here. But like so many people will be like, oh, dude, everything's just a remake or a Marvel movie. I was like, no, it's not. There's so many movies. There are so many movies all the time. You don't see any of them. Yeah. Go see them if you want to see. Or, and or you and do, and what are you complaining because about? No, because yes, nobody's exactly. going to see There's them. like so many crazy, random, uh, cool movies come out. And again, not as many get in theaters uh, for various reasons. The problem is always capitalism. Don't at me. But like, the you know, that's its own separate thing. But like, in terms of just existing to for you to I- experience, at least in whatever capacity, yeah, the shit's out there. You just got to go find it. And again, yeah. same thing with Modern YA. Okay, if you don't like the... The, the the modern YA that gets super popular, I got news for you. There's a billion other modern YA properties and stories out there. Or if you just don't like YA, that's fine. Like yeah, You don't have to like YA. Don't read YA. But like if, if your complaint is that the, the, the modern YA is all the same thing, I assure you it's not. <laughs> and you sound like every person who has ever critiqued all media ever from that perspective <laughs> because the people were saying the same thing a hundred years ago and a hundred years before that uh people have been complaining that the kids these days fiction is worse because of xyz reason and it never is it's never worse it's just different and you don't like it and that's fine you cannot like it but it's not some like magic new thing that is somehow worse or different or people are people. We're the same people. I think obviously we change in different ways as time passes and, and technology has obviously changed things a lot. But the stories we tell have are always the stories we tell. They're about humans. And, it, and the idea that it's somehow different and bad and worse now, just in my opinion, means that you're not looking hard enough probably would be like my sentence like mm-hmm. look harder for stuff you like if you're don't like yeah. what you're seeing a lot of well and and to speak to also to speak to the kind of like you know serialized formula fiction that steve is referencing here like hardy boys and nancy drew and the choose your own adventure books it's true that that stuff isn't trendy right now but that's really the only reason that you're not seeing it is that it's just it's just not trendy right now but trends are cyclical and the last time we had a serialized fiction that was trendy was in the 90s so i wouldn't be surprised if that comes back around and we get a new spin on choose your own adventure or fear street or nancy drew or something like that yeah i i will i do want to give a little bit of caveat and say that i obviously we're i this was all sparked by steve commenting or by us talking about the divergent series and steve disliking the divergent series based on what we said and that sort of thing and so my remarks about go find stuff you do like doesn't really necessarily apply here but i will say i think steve's comment generalized out well beyond Mm -hmm. the divergent series so i think my comments apply but i just want to make it clear that like obviously we're in the context of this we were talking about this specific series and that was kind of the jumping off point but i i I think steve's comment generalized and went elsewhere enough to merit my response maybe i don't know maybe you'll disagree (laughs) steve (laughs) 
Um, so Steve went on to say, I liked some of the older series as well, like The Adventures of Tom Swift and The Tripods. We read the, ca- the classics and occasionally came across some pulpy sci-fi books. You know what these series didn't have? Overwrought love stories and over-the-top philosophizing that is always thinly veiled religious and conservative propaganda. I'm going to push back again. <laughs> um, because... I guess just let's include the next sentence because yeah. I think it ties um, in. I guess it helps most of these series weren't written by right wingers. Okay. Okay. So I'm gonna I'm gonna push back again here um, on a couple points. Now I I'm not gonna try to speak to uh, these series weren't written by right wingers because well, I, I, I don't, don't know I don't know that specifically about every author ever. I would also argue that I don't think I, I would bet my my assessment of Veronica Roth's politics are not that she's conservative or right wing. My my assessment of Veronica's Roth politics are that she's as progressive as somebody deeply Christian like her could be, maybe kind of. Um, and there's a lot of conservative stuff balled up in that but i don't yeah. think she's like a conservative in the I way don't that like think some she's of the on other... the same level as like your stephanie myers no. i would i i it's not the vibe i got yeah. from the book i don't think she's she's not suzanne collins i if i had to guess suzanne collins has far more left leaning politics than mm-hmm. than veronica roth but i don't think she's i don't know if i would describe veronica roth as a right winger based on yeah. this book series again without knowing anything else about her maybe she is i don't know but that's not really the vibe i got while there is conservative stuff i think those are mostly tied up in just kind of the christianity of it all but yeah anyways um okay so i'm gonna i'm gonna push back on two points here um one the point that um there was no overwrought love stories now it might be true that the things that you were reading did not have overwrought love stories however (laughs) um romance in young adult fiction is literally as old as the genre of young adult fiction itself the first book classified as young adult was also a romance and you know you weren't reading that stuff and that's fine it wasn't marketed towards you probably probably yeah. um romance tends to be marketed towards girls yeah you know tends to be, tends to be. um and uh, you know on the 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 point about the thinly veiled religious and conservative propaganda you know i i would not say that older young adult literature does uh religious and conservative the same way that say a stephanie meyer does mm-hmm. However, young adult literature has always been incredibly moralistic. Yeah. It has always been driven by these moral codes of like, what can you show? What can you not show? That's why we don't have explicit sex scenes. We have the fade to black instead. You know, it took a long time until we got to a place where we could show things like people dropping out of school or drug use or teen pregnancy in YA fiction because it has always been governed by this incredibly strict moral code that is, guess what, very conservative. Very conservative. Yeah, I would agree. I think what what you said makes is spot on. it's It's not the same kind of... Um, it's it's not the same kind of message pushing as something like Twilight to some extent, yeah. Which even that is whatever. A lot of that even feels somewhat more baked into just. It, 
even that feels kind of similar to me but i but yes i would agree that that is more message pushing than 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 like the hardy boys or whatever but i yeah your point is is spot on in that it it by the nature of what the stories are doing very often they mm-hmm. are just kind of inherently conservative how many yeah. black characters are there in all of those books yeah from your childhood like how yeah. often how many how many characters of color how many queer, how many queer characters? characters you know like that's that that is again you may not have even thought to think of it that way because it's you know again the books weren't being overtly political in what they were or weren't showing necessarily Mm -hmm. but that is inherently as we say all the time everything's political and i don't think steve necessarily disagrees with this but um or at least i would assume not but everything's political everything is political whether you recognize it or not uh at least in some to some extent and yeah i I, those stories your, your hardy boys your nancy drews all of those kinds of stories are deeply conservative, at least from, you know, I haven't read them in a long time, but they are were come from a time where the world was deeply conservative and they may even have been slightly progressive for the time. I don't know. But because of the kind of the nature of what they were doing and, and the, the perspectives they were showcasing and all that sort of stuff were ended up being intentional or not conservative. Yeah. And it and yeah, so I, I, yeah. I mean. And listen, again, I, I want to stress that I read a lot of Nancy Drew and I love her, but the most diversity there is in Nancy Drew is her pleasantly plump friend, Bess. Yeah. Who's also a white girl. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I, <laughs> you know, and, and yeah. It, just, it, I mean, just by nature of when these things were written and when they were published, you're going to have these more conservative values baked into the narrative. Yeah. You just have to look for it a little bit more yeah, than and you I, do with other things. I think that's part of it is because now some current media is so much more diverse, is much so much more progressive, generally speaking, that the stuff that kind of goes against that, like Twilight or whatever, is kind of more obvious in comparison because mm-hmm. we do have um, a lot more you know, progressive media out there. So it is more kind of striking and obvious when something isn't progressive or or is you know kind of more like conservative in its in its slant or whatever um but that's not to say that stuff back then wasn't also it was just differently so yeah yeah all right uh so steve's final comments here were i won't lie i couldn't get through the first movie i despised everything about it and decided i would hold my tongue for the end gonna quote the thin red line movie on this one how did it steal the world? What route, what seed did it go from? How you two managed to get through this proves you are dedicated <laughs> and I'm proud to be a patron. Fuck this book series. I don't necessarily disagree with your final point. It's not a good book series. Yeah, I not did good. not enjoy it. Uh, but yeah, thank you for uh, letting us yell at you for <laughs> being a good sport. We appreciate it. Okay, over on Facebook, we had zero votes for the book and one for the movie. Laura said, I've only been vaguely aware of this series' existence since it came out. Never read or watched it, but I really enjoyed listening to your episodes on the first two. I thought your comments on the world-building issues were really interesting. So sort of on a whim, I decided to watch Allegiant on Thursday night to have a little more context for your episode. Laura, you watched Allegiant without consuming any of the other media. Consumed our podcast. I I salute you. Yeah. There were at least three different moments in the movie where I exclaimed, what? Yeah. 
particularly when they were in the weird bubble things, Mm -hmm. the decontamination scene, and of course, the very end. My boyfriend walked in on the moment Jeff Daniels screams no, and he was like, I'm guessing the old white guy screaming no is the bad guy. I mean, yes. If I hadn't listened to your episodes, I probably would have been more inclined to give the movie the benefit of the doubt in that I hadn't read or watched anything else in the series, so of course I'd be a little confused about things. But wow, it seems like the whole thing is just messy. I don't really have anything to say that y'all didn't already in the episode. I agree that there's hints of ideas throughout that if a little more focus was just put on a few plot points, it could be more captivating, and it's pretty anticlimactic when everything seems to summate to just be yourself, I guess. (laughs) IDK. Regardless, I had fun watching it for a surprisingly trippy and mediocre YA movie. Mm -hmm. Anyway, thanks for all you do. I love the podcast and have been listening since 2019. Congrats on another successful summer series. Oh, thank you so much. Yeah, it's, uh, you know, it was fine. <laughs> <laughs> it was not my favorite summer series, but it was fine. <laughs> it's done, though, so or will be after this episode. Our other comment on Facebook was from Sarah, who said, Neither. They both sucked. <laughs> I was a big fan of Divergent, the book, was very let down by Insurgent and hated Allegiant. There we go. Yeah. That's the perspective I was imagining we'd get. <laughs> when you have a book series that is entirely told from one person's perspective and then and then in the last book have the perspective split, it was a huge giveaway that the main character was going to die. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. That's fair. <laughs> All right. Over on Twitter, we had one vote for the book. It's zero for the movie. Kelly Napier said, okay, standing up for the book here again, <laughs> Brave soul. while also recognizing that the book is terrible. The plot is ridiculous and is so full of holes and contradictions that it left me wondering if any editor ever took a pass at it. We I, I also thing. wonder. Yeah. The science is ridiculous and makes zero sense despite the constant attempts to explain it. But I like that book Trist doesn't seem to fully buy into David's BS as much as movie Trist does. He's obviously not a good dude, and in the movie she seems to turn her back on the people who have survived all this trauma with her because one guy who knew her mom years ago says they're wrong and he's right. I really actually liked that in the movie. I know we talked about it, but I liked the idea that because this guy had this connection to her mom and Mm -hmm. that she was so into that, and that he's telling her he knows what her mom wanted and that she's special and he's, you know, she I, I thought the 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 movie did a good job of kind of not a great job, an mm-hmm. OK job <laughs> at kind of showing how a how 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 somebody even our hero can be manipulated by somebody without really realizing it mm-hmm. um, because they want to believe what they're saying. I guess. Yeah. And I thought that was interesting. You know, in theory, I like both approaches. Yeah. I don't think either of them were well done. Uh, yeah, that's true. I didn't dislike it in the book necessarily. I just mm-hmm. thought the book or the movie's version was more interesting. Uh, like and more a li- intriguing to you. More intriguing to me and a little better executed than the books. Just not again, not a lot better executed, but a little bit better executed. Mm-hmm. And that's why I enjoyed it. But. Um, Kelly went on to say, I also like the way her mom's journals are presented in the book versus the movie. The little glimpse into her mom in the movie doesn't actually inform at all about why her mom may have made the choices she made. Agree entirely with that. I also had a problem with that. It also gives Triss a reason to start to bridge the chasm that's formed between her and her brother. And I even liked that the book killed Triss. This is where we depart. (laughs) 
(laughs) (laughs) So often with so many of these novels, the hero or heroine constantly defeats death to the point where it's hard to believe they are ever in any danger. She took a risk and it didn't pay off. Real world consequences. I don't disagree with that sentiment. Okay. And I, I've read a little bit of what uh, uh, Kelly's about to say, and I actually agree that this is a way better version of the ending of the book. But I still would have preferred not killing Triss, mainly because I don't like the reason she killed Triss. It's fair. It's probably the main reason. And then two, it's a bummer. But one, mm-hmm. I think, and, and and I'm not reading your YA series to be bummed out particularly. Like, I'm sorry, I'm just not. I'll go read The Road if I want to be bummed out by like I'll go read something. Good Lord. I'll read something better that is raising more interesting questions and executed better if I want to be bummed out while reading. I, I, like, uh, whatever. But um, but more importantly than that, I, is I just, I, I the, the, the reason for the character dying and the way it was executed was so poor that I didn't like it. I, I would have been, I would have, if Harry had actually died in Harry Potter, I, th- I would have been upset at the time, but I think that would have worked. Yeah. Whereas this, I don't think works, but. Fair enough. All right, so Kelly went on to say, I'm going to fix the ending of the book right now. Bold words. All Roth had to do was write the whole book from Triss's perspective. Then she is shot. We don't know whether or not she survives until we turn the page. The next chapter is all of a sudden told from Tobias's perspective and from two years in the future. He's the voice of the epilogue and tells us briefly about his struggle to reconcile her not being around anymore and then presenting how the world of Chicago looks now. I so I don't think it's a perfect ending, but I think that's a uh, way better way better than what we got. What we yeah. got. And I also think it helps with the bummer of it all. Like my second point, because I think part of the big thing that made it a bummer is how long we spent yes. dealing with the aftermath. Yes. In a way that was Again, intentional because we're, we're we're it's supposed to be sort of a real exploration of kind of grief and the and the the moments right after Triss's death. But the whole thing with Uriah and all that, I, I think even maybe slightly tweaking this, if it had switched to to Tobias's perspective right after she gets shot, and we have him find out because I do think those scenes are really well written, like him coming to terms with her being dead. And we just had those couple of short chapters after mm-hmm. he gets back and she's dead and then he finds out and then it becomes real and then he like sees her body and then we kind of almost immediately go to the epilogue. Something like that is very similar, but I think that maybe would have worked. But I agree. I think that's a, a in yeah. my opinion, I, I, I feel like that. you yeah. either do something like that or you just commit to the split perspective bit for the whole series. Series, Yeah. No, yeah, that, yeah, but that, that she shouldn't have done that because, again, as other people have said or will say, she doesn't do a good enough job differentiating. No, her voice, I, no, so. I agree. Oh, say, Livy. On the movie side of things, I liked the barcode tattoos. In a world obsessed with equating someone's purity level to their societal value, it was a good visual way of relating that. Mm-hmm. And outside of the stupid body bubbles that took them to the Bureau, the special effects throughout the movie looked cool. The surveillance computer technology made for a creative way to insert our characters at the Bureau back into the action in Chicago. And I liked the drones. Yep. 
I think it is Providence, Rhode Island, because why would every other name dropped city be real and then come with a fake name that is also a real name of a U.S. city? Sure. I still disagree for the reason stated earlier, but sure. I don't think the people involved with this project are that clever. It is hard to pick a true winner between the book and the movie since we didn't get the second movie, but I hated the ending of this movie. It's too sappy with Triss and Tobias lovingly looking over the world they saved, and then that shot of David just standing there watching from the control room is so stupid. The we're safe now, but are we trope is one of which I've never been a fan. Finally, as a born and raised Wisconsinite, I'm also not a fan of Milwaukee. Nice. Peter and Milwaukee deserve each other. I actually don't know anything about Milwaukee. It actually seems like a delightful city. As far as I know, it's a I've perfectly seen, nice town. It's, sure, it's fine. I just, yeah. Um, if you're looking for a YA dystopian series that does a better job with the it was all an experiment to try to save the world thread, look at The Maze Runner. Oh, I'm sure we will eventually. Yeah, we'll get there at some point. <laughs> that was also, I believe, another series that they did not finish making movies for. Uh, I think they did, but I think they switched to TV movies. Did they? I don't know if they finished it because I don't know how many there were, but I know. there's. I looked this up at one point and I think there's like five books, but only like three movies. Okay. I thought that the Maze Runner just switched to TV movies or something like that, that I could be wrong. I don't know. I, no. I thought they might have finished it, but maybe they didn't. I don't know. Well, we'll find out at some point. Yeah. Okay. Over on Instagram, we had five votes for the book and four for the movie. Hannah RJ um, sent us maybe the, <laughs> maybe my favorite comment ever on these. Um, and it just says her fuck ass Bob and then a lesser than symbol. And then books. <laughs> okay. Fair enough. Hannah did not <laughs> like her hair. Her hair did not bother me. Um, when they got her in like the all white outfits, she was giving like suburban lady a little bit. But oh, she was giving. Uh, didn't really bother uh, me. Uh, <laughs> Kirsten Cinema. She's giving a, yes. a, a, a Democratic politician with terrible politics, <laughs> despite being a Democrat. Yeah. All right. And our second comment on Instagram was from Emily Dinkulich, who said, my vote goes to the book. While I did enjoy the movie, they could have wrapped it up as one with an added 40 minutes to the runtime. Agree with that entirely. Yes. If they did that instead of separating it, the movie would have won. That said, the third book is how Veronica should have approached her series, showing two perspectives or more instead of following just one. I love the beginning where they showed the aftermath and how killing one tyrant gives birth to another, making the situation worse than before and factionless using their power, their position of power to treat people however they see fit. My opinions on that are well-tread well at this point. Well-documented. Yeah. Wasn't a fan of killing both Edward and Tori, but if it reduces meaningless characters, more power to the book. However, that praise is taken away when I learned that Tori's brother is alive. Fuck you, Veronica, for introducing a pointless character that contributed nothing to the already convoluted plot. I really like that we spent more time inside Tobias's head with his struggles, feelings, and perspective in the final installment. 
Tris learning the truth about divergence, the experiment, and her mother's past was more intriguing before her ultimate sacrifice at the end. Overall, as flawed as these books are, I enjoyed the ride. The series is one that I will not be revisiting, but I'm not opposed to checking out Veronica Roth's new books to see if she's improved as a writer. I'm sure she has. And it's again, yeah. I, I think for a first effort in college, these could have been way worse than that. Oh, yeah, they like, could have been I, way I, worse. I, yeah, it, you know, given, uh, you know, her how young she was, and I believe this is like her first big novel series, mm-hmm. um, could have been way, way worse. Yeah. You know, I, I, these books, I think, are crying out for her to have a mentor. Yeah. You know, you know, somebody to guide her through some of the finer points of crafting. Yeah. Um, But I, I agree with you. They could have been way worse. Yeah. Uh, I had fun sharing this journey for the podcast, and I'm holding my fingers crossed for a potential 2024 summer series on Maze Runner. Well, I guess you'll have to wait and see. Who knows? I do. I do too, but <laughs> I don't want to spoil it yet. No, certainly not. Over on Goodreads, we had zero votes for the book and one for the movie. Um, I just want to say real quick that when I went on Goodreads, we had a notification that there was another comment from another person um, in addition to our usual feedback from Miko. Mm-hmm. Um, however, when I went to the actual post, that comment was not there. So uh, I hope that person whoever you are that you just changed your mind and deleted your comment and the goodreads did not eat it i also wonder yeah hopefully so let us know if that is you and maybe that happened my my, my other guess might be that maybe miko commented and then deleted and did it again and maybe you know what i, I mean i could see oh, that person's, see person's name oh, yeah okay. okay never mind then um then yeah if you're the other goodreads person if you wanted to share that please let us know uh <laughs> somehow what that was <laughs> All right, Miko said, I repeated my little experiment and watched Allegiant before reading the book. Where doing this with Insurgent didn't really raise questions, Allegiant made up for it and then some. The film was not followable, but that's the best compliment. Was not unfollowable, but that's the best compliment I can give it. The book did answer most of my big questions, but somehow that too doesn't make that much sense. In the interest of time, here's a heavily abridged list of my notes. First, the movie thoughts. What are the papers Christina brings that allows them to drive through the gate? Um, I assumed some kind of entry permission. I I don't know. The movie doesn't care. She has something. Yeah. How does Tori know to bring gear for Caleb and Peter? That That is a fine question that I did not think about. Oh yeah. Well, it also depends because I that whole thing with Tori, we I figured out that I I missed in the movie. She does give Tori that note, and I I don't know yeah. the context of when that happens and who they know is coming. But I at think that it was point. before they they acquired Peter and Caleb. It's before they acquired. But I don't know. Well, definitely Peter because they they didn't want to bring him. There was no yeah. plan to bring him. Caleb. So they, I don't so know when they were planning been, to bring. Yeah, Caleb. they might have already been planning to bring Caleb. Maybe she just. Thought it would be a good idea to have, have an extra. extra. Yeah, I don't, I don't know. know. Um, also, where's the actual survival gear, like food and water? Yeah, I don't even know if they That's have any another, bags, do Another they? good point. Yeah, they I don't, don't have, think like, they backpacks did. or anything. Yeah. All you had to do is give them all big just backpacks. Just give them backpacks. Or even just any Maybe they yeah. do. I can't remember. Um, why doesn't it rain red in Chicago? Um, yeah. Is the force field not a dome? Well, in the movie, that whole four, that, that so that's none of that's from the book. And so these right. are obviously his questions before having read the book. So he was 
trying to figure out if these were going to be answered. This is probably like his own like lost in adaptation kind of thing. Like, are these questions going to be answered in the book? Um, and obviously in the book, there is no dope. There's that force field doesn't exist. Right. And the whole like Martian world and the yeah, blood rain and all that stuff red. doesn't. It's obviously not blood rain. I mean, it's within, within the world of the movie, I think assuming that the force field is some kind of right. dome. Yes. Solves that question. Yes. Yeah. In the movie, I would assume that's going on because it is like a force field. They say you have to like they literally you can't get through it. Stuff yeah. can't get through it without. So, yeah. The flying car slow-mo is hilarious. I almost choked and had to pause the movie. Fantastic. Glad we're not alone in that. Using Triss as evidence that the Chicago experiment works is stupid as she's half outsider. It's interesting. Pretty, I didn't consider I, that. I think that's a pretty good point. An interesting point, yeah. I, I don't think she's a good example. Not, not particularly, no. Uh, Miles Teller uh, has clearly given up trying and is the best part of the whole movie. I agree. He's the best part of the series. Uh, the mind wipe gas is the most useless thing ever. Even Evelyn, who was lying injured on the floor through which the gas was being pumped, escaped unaffected. It really is ridiculous. Yeah, how, I'm much, like, how much of this they gas had to have do you so have to much. inhale? Well, the city would have had to literally been entirely concentrated with, yeah like it was crazy and then like everybody sits in it for like yeah, 20 minutes it was crazy like you literally had to be in, entirely in like inculcated in this gas like yeah for a long time yeah. for it to work because there's people running through it and like all kinds of stuff and seemingly none yeah. of that does anything it's like you literally there's like a threshold and until you like sit and breathe it for 30 seconds <laughs> it doesn't do anything which seems strange but all right and some book thoughts the blurb on the back of my book says, quote, old discoveries are quickly rendered meaningless. <laughs> I did not read that. That's amazing. Is that supposed to make people uh, want to read this? At least now, there's truth in I advertising there. I don't know if that, because we had the copies that uh, Thrift Book sent us were hardbacks without oh, yeah. the dust jacket. So yeah. we might have just not had that on our copies. But that is an incredible pull oh quote. Oh, my God. It's that's amazing. So good. I mean, yeah, like I said, truth in advertising. Yeah. The, the book also calls that out several times. So We move closer together like sections of a tightened shoelace is my new favorite simile. That is not uh, terrible. Page 91. Uh, you know, she has some, like, nice moments of, yeah. like, simile and figurative language yeah. scattered throughout yeah, these she's books. She's not, like, a terrible writer. She's not a, yeah. I'd feel worse about Tori's death if she wasn't waving her flashlight about. I can just hear my drill instructor shouting, light discipline, and how you've ruined your dark vision and given away your location. Dauntless training at work again. That is again. true. She is dauntless. She should know better than that. But apparently they're just I mean, theoretically, soldiers. but like all they really seem to do is like get into fist fights and jump off of trains. That's true. Like what kind of training do they actually have? Yeah. When Triss and friends escape the city, it's never mentioned that they passed the fence and it confused me so much. The whole time I was assuming Evelyn's guys would be at the fence monitoring that no one leaves. Triss and friends say the train is getting close to the fence hop off, have a quick fight, get in the car, and drive to the unknown. But nowhere do they climb over the fence. I don't remember. I don't remember either. Yeah. The only explanation I can think of is that Evelyn is an idiot and allows trains to pass through the fence without checks, and they simply hopped off outside the fence. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know. I don't remember that. Because um, we what, established what in Divergent that there's like... A lock. A, yeah, a lock and a on gate. On the outside of the fence. Yes. So it's that big thing. Ooh. <laughs> Ooh. Yeah. 
Uh, Tobias doesn't have a distinct voice and sounds like Tris to the point I, that I lost count how many times I mixed them up for a second. I would tend to agree with that. Yeah. They're I, not particularly. If I didn't make a very conscious note in my head at the beginning of the chapter, which mm-hmm. who it was, I would occasionally be like, wait, who am I yeah. reading? As long, like, I, I typed were. it in my notes at the beginning of every chapter so yeah. I could easily look. I also did the same see. thing. Yes. I also couldn't believe Chicago wasn't mentioned before and checked the ebooks. Thank you, Miko. The blurbs mention Chicago and Roth mentions it in her notes, but until the Bureau, the city doesn't have a name in the That's story. That's wild. Utterly insane. That's crazy. I really wanted to discuss the Chicago experiment, but it just doesn't make sense. I understand. Katie is right. They did edit the genes before the experiment started. Okay. As David explains, quote, they called genetically damaged individuals to come forward so the Bureau could alter their genes. The Bureau then placed them in secure environments to settle in for the long haul. They would wait for the passage of time for generations to pass for each one to produce more genetically healed humans. Okay. So what did they even edit? Because it sure as hell doesn't seem to and be the damage. Why would they assume genes. it would be better? Because the whole problem was caused by them yeah. messing with the genes. I don't know. So I don't know. Assume, I, uh... And why does the experiment require that Chicago is isolated and ignorant to the experiment? Why couldn't they have experimented with the damaged in the bureau? They could even have pure partners. The, continue. Are we supposed to let random mutations correct the genes? This is a huge point that yes. I'm so mad didn't occur to yes. me because that is literally... It's a terrible experiment. The worst... Po- not even experiment. This, so if you want to, f- like, quote-unquote, fix genes, you would want the the, the people with, quote-unquote, undamaged genes to breed with the yes. people with damaged genes. Yes. That's the only way you would fix them. Like you're saying, unless you're just banking on random mutation to fix it, yeah. it, it makes no sense. Um, without evolutionary pressure, you aren't getting rid of the damaged ones. Also, they chose to group the similarly damaged yeah, people into like factions, the opposite of what you essentially do. guaranteeing that couples share damaged genes, passing them surely to their yeah, heads. Yeah, this is literally this is the most damning thing about the whole explanation never, of this experiment. That is true. I am so mad that I didn't <laughs> think about that because it is so obviously like. Yeah, a yeah. fifth grade understanding of genetics, and you're like, wait a second, those punt squares, those, those punt don't squares make are sense. not adding up. Yeah, it's just, <laughs> yeah, somebody didn't learn about recessive genes or whatever. It, like, it, yeah, it's just like, wait a second, that's literally the exact opposite of what you would want to do if you wanted to like, yeah, fix the genes. You would not yes. put all the people with the the specifically similarly <laughs> fucked up genes in one thing and have That's them specifically the best breed. The thing with each about other. it to me, though, it's is wild. that the factions would be the reason that this did not work. Yeah. Oh, that's ah, amazing. So that's amazing. Thank you, Miko. You've brought me joy and delight on this day. <laughs> Um, Mika's final comment here was the best thing going for the book is that it has a proper ending, but it somehow also has way too much and nothing going on at the same time. While I think the movie generally makes less sense, it cuts the amount of boring nonsense. This is close to a tie, but the movie wins purely for entertainment value. That's pretty much exactly yeah. our, my opinion is like the movie doesn't make a lot of sense, maybe less sense than the books, but it's way less boring. Yeah. So <laughs> win. All right. And our poll winner, uh, incredibly, it was a dead tie. 
with both the book and the movie getting seven votes each. Wow. Well, there you go. All right. Thank you all so much for your comments on Allegiant. It's time now for us to see what's coming up next. Learn a little bit about Catherine called Birdie, the book. You're my only daughter. If I say that you should be married, then married you should be. Where is the Lady Catherine? I've come here to propose marriage. A man has come and asked for me by name. You cannot mean our Lady Catherine. She's a vile creature. Some say she has a third ear. She does. Have you seen this third ear? I've seen it. Where? Back of her neck. Is it functional? Spare. Spare. I'm not interested in meeting him nor any man with his intentions. See our friends. Would I choose to die rather than be forced to marry? I do not think either option appealing or fair. See the sun. I cheer for you, Birdie. I fear for you. I am, thank the Lord, very cunning. Most girls are, though we're not giving due credit for it. Catherine, called Birdie, is a 1994 children's novel by American author Karen Cushman. Uh, It is a historical novel in diary format, and it is set in 13th century England. Uh, Catherine, called Birdie, was Cushman's first novel, and she wrote it at age 50. Um, So that's one of those nice, uh, it's never too late stories. Aspirational never too late, yeah. (laughs) Which we love in our mid-30s. Absolutely. In an interview, Cushman said of the book, quote, I had been interested in the Middle Ages for a long time. I liked the musics, the costumes, the pageantry, and the color. It seems an interesting time when Western civilization was growing towards the Renaissance, just like a child growing into adolescence. I first thought about writing books set at that time after reading about the lives of children in times past. I thought about what life might have been like for them when they had no power and little value especially girl children. I wondered how they coped with their lack of value and still kept a sense of their own worth, how they made choices when there were few options, how they survived when they had little power. Mm -hmm. A couple review poll quotes. Um, Kirkus Reviews said, quote, The period has rarely been presented for young people with such authenticity. The exotic details will intrigue readers while they relate more closely to Bertie's yen for independence and her sensibilities toward the downtrodden. Her tenacity and ebullient naivete are extraordinary, at once comic and thought-provoking. This first novel is a delight. Publishers Weekly wrote, quote, Despite the too convenient ending, this first novel introduces an admirable heroine and pungently evokes a largely unfamiliar setting. Um, And Common Sense Media called it, quote, a, quote, spirited novel that offers a warts-and-all view of the Middle Ages and wrote, quote, it draws readers into a rich, well-realized world where the trappings are fascinatingly old-fashioned, but the characters are universal and relatable. Fun. Uh, The book won the Newbery Honor Medal, 1985, uh, the Silver California Book Award for Juvenile Fiction in 1994, a Golden Kite Award in 1995, and it was a Dorothy Canfield Fisher Children's Book Award nominee in 1996. Um, And I believe that is for uh, new authors. Um, So I didn't do a learning set. I did not do a learning thing segment this week um, since we had so much feedback and so much stuff we wanted to talk about, but I will tell you what I had planned. 
So it's going to be really more of like a theorizing segment with my thoughts on a pattern that I noticed Mm -hmm. because these books came out during a period of time in the 90s when a lot of books marketed to girls my age went really hard on realistic, emphasis on realistic, historical fiction featuring plucky young heroines. Mm -hmm. You know, we're talking American Girl, we're talking Dear America, we're talking The Royal Diaries. I have lovingly dubbed this historical girl power. Um, And if anyone is interested in hearing my thoughts on that, I will find a way to work it into the main episode. Sweet. Sounds good. All right. Now let's learn a little bit about Catherine called Birdie, the film. You'd like to go anyway, your father, isn't it? And a horribly duplicitous creatures. Oh, Oh, make it stop. I can't control it. close to my face. <laughs> you have wings. You must learn how to harness them. You don't get to decide who we are, where we go, or how much we cost. Like, we're just things. We're not things. We're people. And we can think, and we can hear, and we can feel. But we are here. I wish I could help every girl in the world. Knowing your own story will be your salvation. But for now, I am enough. Catherine Called Birdie, no comma, uh, is a 2022 film written and directed by Lena Dunham, known for Girls, Tiny Furniture, and Sharp Stick, among other things. More on that uh, in a little shortly. Uh, I'm sure I know people have mixed feelings on Lena Mm, Dunham. Yeah. Uh, We'll discuss, I'm sure. But yeah, no no comma in the title. I assume, my guess is that without having looked into it, that there's like a superstition about having punctuation in movie titles. I bet they generally is, is avoided. There? I know there is for question marks. Hmm. I know generally question marks are like an old thing is considered like is is it's like bad voodoo to put um a, like a question mark in your movie title. Interesting. I don't know if that goes for all. Uh, obviously, there are movies that have. Are there movies that have like punctuation marks? Yes, there are. Um, I don't know if. I, it also is just kind of cleaner to look at. Yeah. I don't know. But anyways, no comma in the movie. I double checked on IMDb to make sure I wasn't just missing it. But, you know, there is no no comma in the movie title. The film stars Bella Ramsey, Billy Piper, Andrew Scott, Leslie Sharp, Joe Alwyn, Sophie Okonedo, Paul, uh, Paul Kay, Dean Charles Chapman, Isis Hainsworth, Archie Renault, Mimi M. Kaisa, and David Bradley. Uh, and also, I guess, Russell Brand is in it. A uh, couple people, a lot of people we know from stuff in there. Uh, mm-hmm. Interestingly, uh, Mimi uh, M. Kaisi, uh, Kaisa is, um, she's in The Witcher. She's, oh. uh, I can't remember the character's name. She's one of the the mages. Mm-hmm. Uh, the one who works for, uh, whatchamacallit, um, no, uh, the bad guys in the first season. And then most recently, she was left for dead and she like escaped. Oh, in, uh, can't remember she, that, what, yeah, that mage's name. Um. Anyways, that's yeah. her, that actress. Uh, Archie Renault is Mal in Shadow and Bone. Oh. Yeah. Uh, and then, obviously, the main three, Belly, Bella Ramsey, Billy Piper, and Andrew Scott. Mm-hmm. Andrew Scott, been in tons of stuff. Fleabag, Sherlock, Billy Piper is Billy Piper. Billy Everybody Piper, yeah. Billy Piper is in Bella Ramsey. So. Yeah. 
Uh, and yeah, Bella Russell Brand is in the trailer. I don't. I hope he's not in it much. I can't look at that motherfucker anymore. <laughs> um, so the film has an 88% on Rotten Tomatoes, a 74 on Metacritic, and a 6.6 out of 10 on IMDb. So pretty good reviews. Uh, there's no box office because it was an Amazon Prime film uh, or budget numbers that I could find. Obviously, the budget numbers exist, but I, I, did, I wasn't yeah. able to find them. It was announced in February of 2021 that Lena Dunham had penned the script for the film and would direct a film based on Catherine called Birdie, which was, quote, her longtime passion project, end quote. Uh, and according to IMDb Trivia, this is Bella Ramsey's first lead in a feature film, which I thought was interesting. I didn't realize that. Uh, they had been in, like, a bunch of short films mm-hmm. and uh, some TV shows, obviously Game of Thrones and stuff at this yeah. point, but uh, they had not been, like, in a lead in a feature. Right. On the casting of Bella Ramsey, uh, Lena Dunham said, quote, that was the face of Birdie I always saw. And then speaking of the illustration of the title character on the original edition of Cushman's novel, uh, Dunham went on to say, quote, when I saw Bella's face, it summoned so many of those same qualities that the character has. Very classical beauty coupled with intelligence and wide eyed innocence coupled with trickery, end quote. Uh, Some other fun facts I found from a like a magazine article which that quote also came from there wasn't much on like wikipedia and stuff about this movie but i was able to find some articles to pull some other stuff from uh lena dunham's dog ingrid uh, which is a mexican hairless and pug mix has Mm. a cameo in the film as baby jesus in the christmas pageant (laughs) uh quote she has quote as we were traveling to these medieval buildings we would see these old paintings of saints and peasants with their dogs they all looked a little like Ingrid. She has a very medieval look. So your dog quote. is ugly. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Because medieval artists did not know how to make animals. Yeah. Uh, another fun fact. This one's from INDB. One of the songs on the soundtrack, Honey to the Bee, sung by Misty Miller, was actually a huge hit in the 90s for Billy Piper, who plays Birdie's mother in the movie. Uh, which, if you didn't know, if you only know Billy Piper from Doctor Who... Or Gossip Girl, I think, are her two biggest things. Is it Gossip Girl? Or... Is she in Gossip Girl? I thought she was in Gossip Girl. Maybe I'm thinking of something else. Obviously Doctor Who. But um, I thought she was in some other big series for quite a while. But anyways, um, she was a pop star in the 90s yeah. in England and had some pretty big hits. Nothing that really went mainstream over here, like in mm-hmm. the U.S. as much. But she had some big U.K. hits and stuff like that. Uh, and then finally, getting into some reviews, uh, David Fear from Rolling Stone said the film was, quote, the perfect mix of funny, irreverent, and outraged, calling Dunham's adaptation, quote, deliriously fun yet pointed, and Ramsey's performance as, quote, a gift from the casting gods, end quote. And then giving the film four out of five stars, Adrian Horton, writing for The Guardian, said, quote, the, misdirect- the midsection drags a bit. But concluded that, quote, in Dunham's hands, the through line of enduring and discovering one's worth, however historically imagined, is at once a comfort and a lark. End quote. All right. End of review. So uh, I, we won't get into Lena Dunham all that much because who cares? I will say I think it's really interesting that she might be the perfect person to adapt this. So I, like a, a lot of the critiques of Lena Dunham that I've seen, I've not watched girl. I don't know if I've ever seen a single thing Lena Dunham has done. I've only ever, yeah, I don't think I have, you know, so I can't really comment on any of that, but um, the, the main thing I've seen levied at Lena Dunham generally, broadly speaking, is that her point of view is very kind of white girl, mm-hmm. liberal feminism mm-hmm. in a way that is maybe not as uh worldly and inclusive and intersectional as one would hope. Mm -hmm. 
that might be the perfect she might be the perfect person to adapt this story because i like this the story is about a a rich white girl basically yeah uh kind of of rebelling against her parents wishes it's like Lena Dunham to a T like she I, I, from what I know, I'm pretty sure Lena Dunham. That's one of the other things levied at her is like she's got very rich parents and like mm-hmm. kind of grew up with a silver spoon in her mouth. And so that has affected a lot of like her perspective on things like that and the sort of thing. Again, I, I this is all just kind of me relaying what I've gathered from the cultural consciousness. I have not done my research, but I, it seems to me like maybe this story is the kind of story she should tell. Like, yeah, potentially I mean, it's probably better than her telling like some other stories. Yeah. Um, she is one of the factors in that that kind of like uh, that kind of feminist sensibility that is maybe like a, a little a, a decade or so behind um, is one of the elements, uh, the factors that makes me nervous about this adaptation. Yeah. I wouldn't also be surprised if Lena Dunham hasn't grown a lot since like girls and other like I mm-hmm. it wouldn't surprise me. She doesn't strike me as a dumb person necessarily uh, or like a, or, or like an ignorant. Per- oh, she did cast Russell Brand in this movie. So uh, in 2021, which he was already well off the cliff, I think, at that point. But I, I think I don't know for sure. Maybe his downward. Tra- I, he's like a nightmare person now. I don't know. Like, I, I don't know. He has a podcast. He has, he has a podcast <laughs> that he just, he's like, it's like he basically like a, a, a new agey, like wow. hippie Joe Rogan. But, but like, like, like that kind of like, he's like vaccine denial. And like, yeah. he's like into all that kind of like, hmm. like he kind of plays a centrist, but like only ever has like terrible people on his mm-hmm. podcast. It's, he's very much off the deep end of like, reactionary shithead kind of uh fascist enabling politics at this point um, yeah but i don't know at this because he he what i don't know if he's always been that whatever but he uh i don't know at the time of him being cast in this movie where he was on that timeline may have been mm-hmm. much more but anyways, i mean point I, guess, being, <laughs> I guess the thing that makes me kind of nervous about an adaptation of this book in 2022 is that part of what I really liked about this book and what I really liked about other books I read by Karen Cushman at the time was the commitment to, and and I'm not educated enough to say whether or not the book is like historically accurate, but was, it was like the commitment to presenting the story in a way that felt historically accurate and was like committed to being realistic about what Bertie would have been able to do within the constraints of the time period mm-hmm. and the position that she held. Yeah. And that like does make me a little nervous about an adaptation. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we'll see uh, that. I think this last review definitely lends credence to your concern, even though they seem to like it in Dunham's hand, the through uh, the through line of enduring and discovering one's worth. However, historically imagined is at once a comfort and a lark. Makes yeah. me think that maybe that is that your concerns may be validated to some extent. I don't know. I don't know what the book's about. I don't know what happens in the book or the movie. So I, I couldn't begin to guess or speculate, but uh, it should be interesting. I'm actually looking forward to it. I watched the trailer. I think it looks fun. It looks mm-hmm. good to me. I, I think it looks very enjoyable. Um, all three of the leads I'm a big fan of. I think they're all fantastic. Um, Andrew Scott, Billy Piper and Bella Ramsey. So yeah, I, I, I'm very excited to watch it. I was, like I said, I hadn't heard of it all. And then when I saw 
who was in it and uh, the reviews it got and stuff, I was like, oh, and like what it is, I'm very, very excited to watch it. So speaking of that, where can people watch it? You can watch it on Prime Video. Yeah, it's a Prime Video movie, at least yeah. in the U.S. I assume that's probably the same everywhere. I, I don't know exactly how that works, but I imagine it's probably on Prime, yeah. basically. Um, so I apologize to anyone who does not have access to Amazon Prime Sail Video. Sail the high seas. Uh, uh, yeah. <laughs> uh, we'll see you next week where we're talking about uh, Catherine called Birdie. Until that time, guys, gals, on Binary Pals, and everybody else. Keep reading books. Keep watching movies. And, and keep, keep being, being awesome. awesome.